0: most excellent part of the New Testament and if you ask any preacher they'll tell you that preaching through Romans if you get to do a series on Romans it's a bit like climbing Everest you know it doesn't get any higher or if you're an actor and you're asked to play Hamlet well it doesn't get any deeper or if you're a musician and you're asked to play alongside Springsteen It really doesn't get any better uh, than that. But maybe that is giving away my own uh, preferences and age. Um, But if you're here and you've reduced this letter to some sort of high-level exercise in doctrinal purity, or, or you just think that what we've got in front of us is Paul's version of a systematic theology, then you've missed its genius. You've missed its strength you've missed its ever-relevant purpose. Because I want to contend that this is first and foremost a missional document. This is about reaching the lost. This is about mobilizing the local church for global mission. And this is important. You may be aware, but there are over 7 billion people on the face of this planet And three billion of them have not heard the name of Jesus. Let alone responded to his call. Three billion have never heard of Jesus. The message has not reached them. To put that in perspective, that means that roughly 1,000 people die each day without ever having heard of Jesus. That's one person every 90 seconds who has never heard of Jesus who goes into that lost eternity. And there are still over 4,000 unreached people groups, which accounts for 42% of all people groups on the face of this planet. This is important when we talk about mission. You see, when you start reading Paul's letter to Rome, it's not immediately apparent what its purpose is. It's only when you get into chapter 15, towards the end of this letter that his purpose emerges because it is there that it becomes clear that Paul is coming to Rome looking for their help in his missionary enterprise. He wants to go to Spain and he's going to be arriving via Jerusalem having travelled there from Corinth uh, to deliver a love love gift from various Gentile congregations. I think we've got a map, have we? Great, Uh, there we are. did we put any lines on it? Just out of interest. Just go one click on. Let's No, we didn't. Okay, back. Super. Thank you. Um, so you can see where um, Jerusalem is. A- and you can see that if you are going to uh, want to do a work in Spain, then actually the ideal launching pad for you is going to be Rome. It's uh, sort of two-thirds of the way there. It is an ideal base for work uh, into uh, that part of Europe, just as Paul was able to use Antioch as his base when he was going into Asia and Greece. He wants to take the gospel into these new unreached areas, and he is writing to Rome and saying, I want your help to do that. You're going to be my launchpad for the gospel into this unreached community. Uh, Romans 15, which we had a preview of on screen, verses 23 to 24. Paul writes, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through. And have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while? And when Paul says to that church at Rome, assist me, he's using language that carries with it a sense of personal and logistical support. Uh, For example, he uses the same Greek word in Titus 3.13 which conveys well its force, Titus 3.13. He writes, do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. The same Greek word is uh, used there, conveying that sense of resourcing someone who is on mission. So in this letter, Paul's preparing the local church in Rome for global mission. If the gospel is to be effectively communicated to unreached people groups, then each local church has a vital role to play, not only in providing financial and material support, but also key personnel. But if the church in Rome was to do this, Paul was aware that it needed to deal with some of its own internal divisions. Because it becomes apparent as you read through this letter that this church was subject to some factional infighting. And although the exact composition of this church isn't precisely mapped out, it would seem from Paul's greetings in chapter 16 that there were at least five different household congregations that went to make up this body of believers, this this church in Rome. And what's more, it seems that the influence in that church of Jewish legalists may have created suspicion among some of the believers in Rome as to what this guy Paul actually believed and taught. Because please remember, this wasn't a church that he'd planted. This wasn't a church that he had visited previously. And so rumors were going around, it would seem, from believers there, legalists, there saying this Paul watch out for him he doesn't teach the gospel he's not teaching that which is true so what does Paul do how does he unite the church and focus them upon the opportunities that there were for global mission how does he motivate them to give and to go so that the good news about Christ may be heard in unreached lands well it's gloriously clear He communicates the gospel to them. He makes the work of Christ on the cross central to all that they believe and do. He gets them to see everything through the lens of Christ's redeeming work. And that makes all the difference. You see, Paul didn't think the gospel was just for the unbeliever. He didn't think it was something that you just limited to outreach events. He didn't think the gospel was just the thing that got people into heaven. He knew that it was the gospel that shapes the whole of Christian life and practice. It was the message of Christ's substitutionary death that would unite believers and would ignite a fire for world mission little wonder he introduces his letter with these words and by the way it might be worth you just having uh your bible open there in romans because we're going to be uh working through a fair pace uh through this letter he writes this romans 1 verses 14 to 17 we had it read to us earlier by barbara i'm bound both to greeks and to non-greeks both to the wise and the foolish that is why i'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at rome i am not ashamed of the gospel Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So do you see, he says, I'm coming to you guys in Rome. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. You are believers, but I want to preach the gospel to you. Now, you and I may think the gospel is what we preach when it comes to a a gospel service. I I was brought up on gospel services and loved them and loved when the gospel was preached. But the tendency then is to think that's what the gospel is limited to. It's for unbelievers. No, it isn't. Paul says, I'm coming to you who know and love Jesus. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach the gospel to you. Because it is the gospel that shapes your lives personally and your corporate life so that the good news of Jesus can get out. I want you to understand, I want you to grasp that the cross is central to all Christian mission. And I need to stress that because I've read books, I've watched videos that put the motivation for mission in a completely different arena. They go along this line. Do you want to hold back the spread of Islam? Do you want to stop the introduction of Sharia law? Do you want to defend democracy? Do you want to protect our culture and our lifestyle? Then go and evangelize the 1040 window. Go to the Middle East. Go to Arabic nations. And the whole thrust of mission is no longer the glory of Christ. It's the protecting of my self-interests. And that completely undermines, that subverts the love and sacrifice that should gladly characterize all cross-centered mission. No, what we need is a fresh appreciation of the work of Christ. If we're ever to reach any of the estimated 85% of this world's population who are not born again, then we must grasp again the profound, the radical truths contained in the gospel message it changes us it changes our churches it changes the world just have a look at how Paul unpacked this glorious gospel as he prepared the ground for his visit to Rome first of all I want you to notice he speaks about God's universal revelation God's universal revelation Romans 1, verses 18 to 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." In other words, there's no innocent person on the face of this planet. There's no one who at the final judgment will be able to say that they didn't know. That they were ignorant of who God is. Paul says all are without excuse. Whether they were living in Rome, whether they were living on the Iberian Peninsula, or whether today they are among the 58 million Yadav who are living in India without a single believer amongst them. They are without excuse. You see, we need to push past this romanticized understanding that we have so often of different people groups. We need to confront our Western ideas that, well, somehow God will forgive them in the end. And that as long as they're sincere, that's all that matters. No, the Bible clearly says they are without excuse. All the beautiful ceremonies and exotic colors and elaborate rituals are nothing more than fig leaf practices created to divert and deflect them from the knowledge of the one true God. You see, the gospel begins with understanding the lostness of the lost. God's universal revelation. They are without excuse but secondly Paul goes on he speaks about man's terrible degeneration man's terrible degeneration at Romans 1 verses 28 to 32 furthermore since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You see, the lost are not just lost in some sort of passive sense. The Bible says that they are actively, continually, creatively finding ways to rebel against God and assert their own authority. Rather than living lives which are looking out upon the glory and beauty and majesty of Christ, they live such inward-looking, self-focused lives that they become the centers of their own universe. For them there is no peace or shalom, there's no wholeness, there's no other-centered joy. And for all that the world might or might not give them, there is this simmering, constant discontent, man's terrible degeneration. Little wonder Paul then goes on to talk about God's wrathful condemnation. God's wrathful condemnation. Romans 3 verses 5 through into 9. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. Uh, And and by the way, it's worth pointing out in passing that Paul's logic here exposes the fact that actually there is not a single person who merits eternal life. Uh, You you, you may say to me, but but what about the uh, innocent guy in, in Asia? who's really trying their hardest will the innocent guy in asia be in heaven yeah they will be paul says that very clearly the innocent guy in asia will be in heaven the problem is there is no innocent guy in asia and that is also what paul makes abundantly clear there is no one no one who is going to be saved by their own deeds Even those Jewish legalists who seemed to dominate some of the Roman house churches that Paul was addressing stood condemned despite the fact that they knew God's law. And and Paul concludes his devastating critique by quoting from a whole variety of Old Testament passages. Have a look at verses 10 to 20 there in Romans 3. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Look, before we ever can get to the good news, we need to grasp the bad news. The gospel makes no sense if we haven't grasped The awful reality of God's infinite wrath upon all sinners. And the total, the complete, the absolute impotence of any human activity to deal with that problem. My friends, we can't, we mustn't ignore preaching about hell and the gloriously awful truth of God's eternal punishment upon all sin. And we do this. Not that we might primarily scare sinners into heaven, but that we might send saints out into the world. This is the condition of men and women without Christ. If you don't get this, or if you so emasculate the gospel by ignoring these truths, you cut away the whole motivation for global mission. If people are actually quite decent... If people can actually find their own way to God, then then why go? Why waste your life going on the mission field? Why not settle down to making money? And in your comfortable armchair, read reports of these tribes in your National Geographic magazine. But if this is true... If this is reliable, if this is accurate, then it makes all the difference in the world. But let's move on, fourthly, to Christ's amazing propitiation. Christ's amazing Propitiation. You see, Paul's prepared the ground for the most glorious reversal that any human mind could ever conceive of. Let me read to you from verses 21 to 26 of Romans 3. He says, but now. Don't you just love that phrase? It has got so bleak, it's got so dark. God's wrathful condemnation upon all sin and it seems helpless and hopeless. But now, he writes, but now. A righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement or as a propitiation through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Look friends, is there anything more remarkable than this? Jesus Christ, eternally one with the Father, came and took upon himself the infinite wrath of God for the sins of his people he drains the cup dry there in the garden of gethsemane as he contemplated what lay ahead he cried out my father if it is possible may this cup be taken from me yet not as i will but as you will you see it wasn't the mocking or torture or injustice or crucifixion that dominated his thoughts It wasn't the nails that were going to be driven into his hands or feet. It it wasn't the slow, agonizing death that filled his mind. It was receiving the infinite wrath of an infinitely holy God. It was drinking that cup. And there on the cross, 2,000 years ago, as the very focal point of the salvation story, the God-man, Jesus Christ, received in himself the full force and weight and penalty and fury of the infinite wrath of an infinitely holy and just God for all the sins of his people. And at the end of his suffering, he cried... It is finished. Brothers and sisters, forgive me, but hallelujah. What a saviour. Hallelujah. What a saviour. What a wonderful truth. God's, Christ's amazing propitiation that he should suffer so that I might go free. But then fifthly, salvation's gracious declaration. Salvation's gracious declaration for the amazing wonder of the gospel is not just in the sacrificial death and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's also in how that work is made mine, how it's applied to my life, how Christ's righteousness is credited to me. Romans 3, verses 26 to 28. God did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And then you'll probably be aware, Paul goes on to unpack that throughout chapter 4 in the life of Abraham. So that when we come to the beginning of chapter 5, we read this, chapter 5, verses 1 through to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So what do we have to do to be made right with God? Nothing. It all comes through Faith in what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. And that faith is not something that we generate ourselves, but is itself a grace gift of God. So what do we contribute towards our salvation? Nothing. What can I pride myself on for my salvation? Nothing. What should I fear when I fail? and fall, nothing. So can you see how this turns out in stark contrast to all the other philosophies and ideologies and religions of this world? This is unique. This is gloriously good news. This is so liberating. This is a message worth taking to the nations. This is a message worth sacrificing your life for. Which leads us on to point six, our obedient proclamation. Our obedient proclamation. Because Paul goes on in chapters five to nine to further unpack this glorious implication of what it means that we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And this Himalayan range of towering truths as Paul goes through them yields one incredible vista after another. He goes, wow, wow. Until in chapter 10, we come to these challenging words. Verses 11 to 15. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In other words, do you get what Paul is doing? Here's the greatest message in all the world, and God has audaciously entrusted it to his people, to his church. You see, God will do his work. People will hear the gospel. Some from every nation will believe in its truths and call on the Lord and be saved. But for Paul, the big question is this. How are they going to hear? Who's going to go? Who will send them? For Paul and the church at Rome, the immediate question concerned those in Spain. They needed to hear the gospel. Paul wanted to go, and the church in Rome had a responsibility to be part of that gospel movement. And for us, there's a gospel imperative to go to the nations. My friends, understand this. This isn't some optional extra. This isn't another program that we tag on to our busy church schedules. This is the very heart of what it means to be God's people. This is a basic marker of what it means to be church. If you are not going out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not a true church. And whether that means engaging with the African or Asian diaspora that has come to your city, or for example, going to... The 34 million Sunda people of Indonesia. We will face up to our responsibilities for the good of their souls and for the glory of Christ. For how will they be saved if they do not hear of the work of Christ? And how will they hear... Unless local churches put the undiluted gospel back at the heart of their corporate lives and consider the calling and training and equipping and sending of cross-cultural workers as the most necessary and natural activity possible. As I said this morning, the greatest gospel need in our churches is not to get people into our buildings, but to get them out into the world. That is our greatest need. But then, finally, another sermon that ends with seven points. Just be so grateful for your pastors. Point seven is this. Mankind's exultant adoration. Mankind's exultant adoration. You see, I've argued that Paul's letter to the Romans is primarily a missional document. Let me give you my final piece of evidence. You may be aware of a literary device called an inclusio. It's where the writer begins and ends a section with the same phrase. It's like a set of bookends. They're often there to point you to what the intervening section is really about. And and actually, you'll find these listed throughout scriptures. If you go to Bible college or something like that, you'll have to deal with inclusios or even if you do ancient literature. It is a common device. Well, actually, Paul does this in Romans. He begins in his opening verses by stating his grand theme. Romans 1 verse 5. Through him, that is Jesus Christ, we receive grace and apostleship to call, now get it, here it is, All the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith, for his name's sake. Note that. Because at the end of the letter, he concludes by repeating exactly the same Greek phrase. And and that would have been noted. We we don't carry these things. It certainly would have been noted then. Uh, Go to Romans 16, 25 to 27 as he closes. He says, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that, here we go, all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, Paul's great theme, the passion that shaped his life, the teaching that shaped this letter is all about going to all the nations so that Christ might be known and glorified for there is no other Savior. There is none other worthy of the praise and adoration of the nations. There is only one who is supremely worthy and his name is Jesus. And for his glory, he will rescue men and women from every ethnic group on the face of this planet. And he calls us to give, and he calls us to go, and he calls us to glory in such a wonderful gospel. I close what I was saying this morning by reading from Romans 5 without apology. I read again these wonderful words, verses 9 to 13, Revelation 5, 9 to 13, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's what it's about. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about his glory. And we have the most wonderful message to proclaim a message to undeserving people like you, like me, that we can be rescued and redeemed because of the work that Jesus Christ accomplished there on Calvary's cross. And we are entrusted with this message, this glorious message, and we are told to go and speak and proclaim Christ. For some of you, it will mean cross-cultural mission. For some of you, it does. That's what you're doing. For some of you, God's call is going to be on your life. And in the next 10 years, you are going to find yourself in cross-cultural situations because you know that's what God is calling you to do. For others of you here, you know that God hasn't called you to do that. But whatever it is, he has called you to live for his glory and praise and honor. And in whatever setting you face tomorrow, the call of God upon your life is to live in such a way that men and women will see and then have the chance to hear about the wonder of Jesus Christ. This message is not something which we can find to a building. This message is not something that we can find to programs. This message is not something we limit to professionals who we employ this message should so grip our lives the lordship of Christ that we will live for him whether that means in the lecture theatre in our college halls of residence whether it means in the workplace whether it means in our neighbourhood we will so say Lord Jesus Christ be formed in me so that I might be able to speak for you because you alone are worthy let's pray Father, we don't want to waste our lives. We want them to be for something useful. And we can think of nothing more glorious and nothing higher than to live for the glory and praise of King Jesus. Thank you that by your grace you have saved so many of us here uh, so that we may live and speak out his praises. Thank you that you've prepared good works in advance for us to do. Thank you that you call us to be ready to respond to all who ask us to give the hope for The answer for the hope that we have. Lord, please, may this message grip us. Some of us here have heard this a thousand times. But Lord, please, may we never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. Keep our hearts tender. And the older we get, may we love Jesus more, not less. For his glory we ask it. Amen.